Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Politics in the Pulpit, a lectionary-based uh, preaching resource designed to ask the provocative questions of how politics could appear in our preaching this week. My name is Ali McMillan and I am a Methodist deacon currently based at Methodist Central Hall, Westminster. I'm a member of the Methodist Diaconal Order, a religious order which brings a sense of rhythm and wholeness to life. Before I trained for ministry, I taught religious education and ethics at a secondary school in Oxfordshire. I am really passionate about coming alongside people where they are and journeying with them as they discover God at work in their lives. Each week, I'm joined on the podcast by a guest from a different place and space on the pulpit and the political landscape. And I'm really delighted today to introduce the Reverend David Musgrave. Uh, David is a retired Methodist presbyter now living in Bath with a long-standing commitment to issues of social justice. He's travelled widely, especially during an early, earlier career in the diplomatic service, and has a particular interest in Africa. He also has concern for interfaith understanding and is currently chair of the Bath Interfaith Group. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, David. We're delighted that you're here. Uh, we know that... Great, good to have you here. We, are, um, we know that politics in the pulpit can be a bit of a contentious topic, but we also believe that it is essential that the world around us speaks into our churches. So when you hear arguments saying that politics should not form part of our preaching, how do you respond to that? I've always f found it difficult getting my head around that point of view at all. I mean, I, I hear it. I hear it a little less now, perhaps, than, than, than a few years ago. But for me, God has created this world, this world in which we are placed. Politics is about means of running the world, means of managing creation, and it is so much part of God's world that I, I simply don't see any way that politics can be separated from what we are doing as people of faith, the way we are trying to understand what God is calling us to be in the world. So for you, they're just completely intertwined. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's always taken me back to many years ago when the question of, of politics and sport was very hot, um, in the, particularly in the case of South Africa and, and apartheid and so on, cricket mm -hmm. and football tours. Um, and at that time, there were, there were again people saying that, that politics should have nothing to do with sport. I think the same arguments apply. Above all, that we hear them from people who, who don't want the status quo to be questioned. So whether that's in terms of, of, of politics or, or, or business or whatever, um, people who, who are, are unwilling to be challenged by the, the point of view of people of faith. You know, this idea that, that there is a purpose beyond our day-to-day our -day management of, of, of our society. Well, it sounds like you're a perfect guest for us to have on the podcast. Um, as I just wonder from your context then, what would you want us to hear as key justice issues or uh, perhaps political events? Well, it's a, a particular moment in time, I suppose, that, that, that we are approaching this week, both local ele elections and, and a very big day on, on Saturday. So, and when we come to look at the lessons, the, there are some particular Cross, crossing points, I think, that, that I'll look at then. Mm. Um, you mentioned my particular interest in, in interfaith relations, which, which goes back a long time, partly connected to my, my interest in the world, the, the, the way I've, I've 
visited different parts of the world, encountered different cultures, um, and have always felt that, that God is speaking to me through different means, through different cultures. Um, and again, when we come to the, the lessons, there are, there are interfaith elements, um, which, which I want to draw out at that point. So, so we might find ourselves focusing a, li a little bit on, on those interfaith issues, I think. Oh, wonderful. That sounds uh, really interesting and uh, it'd be great to hear some of uh, your perspective coming in from those places. Uh, well, each week I ask my JPIC colleagues for a little roundup of their expertise and what they uh, think we might want to be keeping our eye on in the world. Uh, and this week, some of their suggestions are um, the UK government evacuating British nationals from Sudan as fighting continues in that part of the world. Um, obviously, ongoing uh, situation there. Um, the local elections which are going on uh, in this week uh, in the country and uh, many places in England and then I think in, in Northern Ireland as well. Um, and uh, MPs have passed the illegal migration bill in the House of Commons, which will now go uh, to the House of Lords for scrutiny. It's obviously a big piece of um, act of Parliament going through, so we might want to have a think about that perhaps, or those of you who are preaching might want to pick up on that. Uh, so we are still, of course, in the church season of Easter, and this week our readings uh, are Psalm 31, 1 to 5 and 15 to 16, Acts 7, 55 to 60, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 to 10, and John 14, verses 1 to 14. So then with our metaphorical newspapers open in one hand, let's open our Bibles. Uh, David, I wonder if there's a particular passage or a particular theme or question that's jumped out for you this week that you want to start us with as we start our conversation. I think one of, one of my problems this week has been that, that so many things have jumped out at me. I mean, not, not least in this passage from, um, from Peter's first letter or the letter that is attributed to Peter. Um, I'll come back in a moment, I think, to verses 9 and 10, uh, Peter talking about as being a chosen race and a, and a royal priesthood, because I think that's particularly appropriate for us to focus on for a few minutes. But before that, I, I'd just like to make a couple of points about the earlier part of the passage, because there, there, are, there are difficulties there, and, and I, I think it's quite a good example of a passage that we need to read critically and, and give some thought to. Um, first of all, this simply the way that Peter uses uses language that is from the Hebrew scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament, but he uses it with, without attribution. And um, I mean, the scholars, they, they use this word supersessionism, but P Peter is very much writing in a context where the, the Jewish history is to be ignored, essentially. He is taking over the the whole of the the Hebrew tradition and claiming it for the background to to the Christian tradition as as it develops, uh, and clearly that is that is quite an important point and remains to this day a sticking point in in some of our relation relations with with the Jewish tradition. Um, Others might call it cultural appropriation in the language of our day. So, so there are questions about the use of the language there. Yeah. And the, 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 the second point um, is, in, um, is in verse 8, talking about those who stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
And this is one of the, the key passages that, uh, that Calvin in particular used um, with the doctrine of predestination, in fact, double predestination, which, um, which I think scholars of Calvin reckon was, was probably not the most important part of, of his teaching, but yet has been used by some elements to create this sort of dualistic um, divide within humanity. You know, either you're destined for heaven or you're destined for hell in the end. And uh, from a Methodist background, of course, the, the, the Arminian tradition, the Arminian understanding that, that all can be saved um, mm -hmm. counterbalances that. And, and um, therefore I read a, a verse like that with, with, due, with due thought, and um, with due questioning. So I just wanted to draw those two points out as, as mm. elements that, uh, you know, that, that some preachers in particular might, might want to be thinking about. I think that's really helpful just to highlight some areas of, of perhaps caution or where we need some careful thinking around how we, yeah. how we approach them. But let, let's, let's come on to verse, uh, verse 9 and, and 10. Um, Verse nine prob probably is the key verse, and and by pure coincidence, I think, in um, in the week of of the coronation, um, when Peter talks about a chosen race, a royal priesthood, it raises all sorts of questions in my mind, which which I think can be played played with, played through, thought about. Um, the phrase, the royal priesthood. Has, has the two elements, doesn't it? So priesthood, he's talking to all the Christian community, all those who believe in Jesus, all who are following Jesus, and he talks about, about them as, as a priesthood. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, again, from my nonconformist Methodist background, I think feeding into the, the the concept of the of the priesthood of all believers, which of course has been emphasized in, in the Wesleyan tradition, is, is crucial at this point. Um, that we we all have that role, whether we are ordained ministers of, of one kind or another or not. We all are priests of God's work in the world. And to have the word royal alongside it, I, I, I find particularly interesting and Something that I think that encourages me. I mean, I, I I make no pretense about my my republican instincts. I am I am in by all my nature not a monarchist, yeah. and I think the use of the royal alongside the mass of the population effectively suggests there is this sense in which royalty is something to be shared by everybody. That that royalty is not for a well, not for a king set apart, if we're going to be brutally frank about it, um, that we are we are all a royal priesthood. Royalty, this sense of importance in life, this sense of being part of God's purpose, is something that's to be shared among among us all. All of us who feel allegiance to God above all, and then a holy nation. The next, the next phrase, I think, again, underlines the call that, that we have together. You know, we're, we're not to leave it to 
God somehow to do things by magic, by, by conjuring. We are together a nation under God. Um, and we, we share, all of us, that responsibility, responsibility to be part of, part of God's world, part of God's rule. Um, not least those who are the most marginalized in, in society. Nobody is to be excluded. This, this, is, this is a rule for everybody, by everybody, mm. which somehow is the definition of democracy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it is a profoundly democratic verse, which, which, which should inspire all of us who, who are committed to, to that widest possible concept of democracy. I think that's that's I found that incredibly helpful and and almost no matter people's view on the monarchy this idea that actually in God we are all part of this royal priesthood and that speaks into our discipleship and what it means uh, to, to be a person of faith and to to live as community together but I find that very very helpful indeed. It leads on to verse 10 again underlining once you were not a people coming from disparate corners perhaps the most neglected the most marginalized now you are God's people this is playing on words from the opening chapter of Hosea um, playing with with the names as, as Hosea names his 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 children a, a couple of chapters worth reading in their own right because they're, they're, they're a fascinating reflection of, of the importance of words um, but again, I find it an important part of God's promise to us that we are we are God's people. We are all called together. We who had not received mercy in the past have received mercy. We are all part part of God's purpose, and and that that again, I, I think, is something we need to hold very very dearly to. Yeah, and that speaks to, doesn't it, the. Um, uh, dignity that we should give to every human being because we are all God's people it's not reserved for the few or the you know particularly holy or special or royal or, or any we are all God's people and deserve dignity and to be treated with worth and value yeah so that's very helpful thank you anything else on the uh, Peter passage that you wanted to draw out for us I suppose the the other point that, that in fact could apply to all the three passages together with the Acts and the John passages is just to emphasize the need to look at the at the context in, in which all of these were written and particularly the timing. Mm. So, so this was um, probably they were all written round about the eighth or ninth decades of, of, of the first century. So quite a long time after the, the events recorded in the Gospels. Um, and in all of them, there's an element of polemic because it is a time when the, the, the Christian church, as it was becoming, um, was differentiating itself from the Jewish tradition, was, was carving out this, this new niche for itself. Uh, that's partly the earlier reference I, 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 I made to the use of Jewish scriptures by Peter. Yeah. Um, but I mean, perhaps if we, if we move on to the Acts passage, we can, we can have a look at, at this passage from the end of uh, Acts chapter 7. And the, it's the end of this long narrative of Stephen's 
Stephen's sermon, yeah. um, which, which needs to be read at least in preparation, even if it's only this relatively short passage that is, is the one that stands in the lectionary. And of course, Stephen goes right back to the roots of Jewish tradition, the, the beginning of, of history in a sense. Um, and he, he tells the story in a way, most of the, most of the way through, that, that his audience would agree with. I mean, he, he follows the, the normal narrative. And then when it gets towards the end, towards the climax, he, he, he obviously brings in this, this accusation of responsibility for the, for the crucifixion, for, for, the, for the killing, killing of Jesus. And this is the moment at which the mood changes, um, as we hear in this verse 54, when they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth. It's uh, that lovely, lovely sort of image. Um, but of course, Stephen is, is no different, at least until that point, from all the other prophets. He criticizes the, the abuse of those who have gone before. He is, he is very clear about the responsibility for what has happened. Um, but but it's, it's laid at the feet of, of the, the ruling class, effectively, of, of the leaders of the Jewish community. Um, there's the concern, uh, and again, it's, um, the actual narrative is, is, some, is recorded sometime later. But I think it's important to notice that, that, that this is not, um, not an, an anti-Jewish diatribe. Um, having recently gone through the time of the Passion, um, we, are, we are reminded, or we need to be reminded each time, of the way we read the Passion narratives um, and the way that, in some cases, John in particular talks about the Jews and we have to be very careful about distinguishing the Jewish leadership, those who are actually responsible for, for the crucifixion of the sentencing of, of Jesus to death or the handing over to, to Pilate um, from the mass of the Jewish people, because these again are passages that have been used through the ages in, in anti-Semitic processes within the Christian church. And, and you know, just looking through, through the history that we've been reminded of in, in, in recent times. The, um, the, the stories from, the, from Northern Ireland until recently of, uh, of people being singled out, the, 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 the tiny Jewish community there, um, no, no interest, or if perhaps the first question was whether they were Protestant or Catholic in the time of the Troubles. But then those who were singled out as Jews might be heckled or even worse from both sides of the community divide by saying, you know, you are the ones who killed Jesus. And that lingering on of, of anti-Semitism at that kind of level mm. is, is something, again, that I think we need to be conscious of in, in, as, as the back cloth to, to, this, to, to this kind of reading. That's a really helpful reminder to us in our preaching to to not fall into what can be an easy trap of 
um, you know, just sort of lazy, lazy reading of the text without challenging what can become anti-Semitism. So. Yeah. And of course, the way this is told in, in Acts chapter seven, or the, the, the purpose of it, I think, in many ways, is, is to inspire, to encourage these, these words of Stephen, as they are recorded, clearly are, well, they, they echo Jesus's words on the cross, um, you know, do not hold this sin against them. Um, and it's, again, part of that inspiration to the early Christian community to, to be strong, to, to stand up for their rights. Um, but as we, again, as we read it in our day, we need to read it against that, that, that cloth, not least of the succeeding centuries and the way these kinds of passages were used. Yes, no, thank you. Thank you so much for that reminder. I think that's very helpful. Um, anything else on this Acts passage? Now, shall we perhaps move on to John? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a very uh, full, full passage from John chapter 14, isn't it? There's plenty in there. There's, there's a lot in it in, in all kinds of ways. Um, there's a great deal of um, there's a great deal of comfort in it. And again, there's a great deal of encouragement to the followers of, of Jesus. Um, this is, of course, Jesus speaking to the disciples as he prepares for his death and as he tries to prepare them for what life will be like without them. Um, not least because of that context, certainly the first part of this is is commonly used in our funeral service um it's it's one of the two fixed passages from john that appears in our in our funeral liturgy at least in the methodist uh, the methodist worship book um and there are these well-worn well-known phrases i am the way and the truth and the life um responding to to thomas and this this wonderful i mean i'm a i'm a great fan of thomas and I think this is a, this is a, another, isn't it? Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Yeah. Um, I think I think Thomas is so much an icon for our day that he he asks the questions we all want to ask, and sometimes we, at least in the past, we've been afraid to because somehow you would look you would look stupid or you would you would show that you didn't have enough faith. Yeah. Whereas Thomas is the, is the honest human inquirer. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the theme there of, of, of honesty in our faith comes in, doesn't it? That we, um, we shouldn't be afraid of asking these questions. I mean, I always say that in my preaching, I, I don't give answers. I, I just help people with the questions or to formulate the questions. Mm -hmm. And if we can formulate them as well as Thomas can, um, then, then I think we'd be doing very well. I agree. I think Thomas is often asking the questions that I want to answer to. Yeah. yeah. And this this sort of deprecating um, term of doubting Thomas, but perhaps it isn't. I mean, doubt is not a bad thing. Doubt is about asking questions, um, which is part of our faith, our, our journey of faith again, isn't it? Faith, faith seeking understanding is... St. Anselm said many centuries ago. Yeah. And we come to verse six, um, and again, in, with my, my interfaith hat on, if you like, this is one of those verses that, that some people 
want to use if if they're critical of interfaith engagement. Um, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then no one comes to the Father except through me. And there are those who would want to say that that means that you have to be a professing Christian to, to come to God. And, and I read it in a very different way. I, I read it in the context of Jesus, um, as he says a little further down in verse 11, 10 and 11, Jesus dwelling in God, God dwelling in Jesus. Jesus is Jesus is God. Jesus is whatever language one wishes to use, the, the, the window into God. And, and therefore, if we are approaching God by whatever means, we, we are going through a window, we are, we are using a means. So, so my reading of that is that even people who perhaps don't profess faith in Jesus, who, who have perhaps have never heard of Jesus, but they are nevertheless going, going through that window, going through that portal in their quest to God. So I, I, do, I don't have any problem in, in reading verses like that. I, I and, and sharing them with with people of other faith, because um, in my in my talking in, in my in my dialogue with with people from different faiths, I I learn so much from other other dimensions, other ways of of describing of understanding God, um, and I think it's through our contact, through our dialogue, that, that we are able to help help one another in, in our understanding of, of our own lives, of what God's purpose for us may be. Mm. So, so that sense of, a, of the, the human window into God, the way by which human, from our limited human understanding, we can approach God, I think that, that is particularly important. Um, and then these these following verses again try to try to put into language something that that is really beyond our human understanding. But this sense that 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 Jesus is in God, God is the Father is in Jesus. The whole concept of the Trinity, of course, provides the foundation that at least the the, the, the later church fathers managed to put together to try to make sense of this. But as anybody who's, who's tried to preach on Trinity Sunday knows, it's a, it's, it's a complex set of mysteries. Mysteries not in... Uh, it's a, a, a bit of an aside, but I always make the distinction between mysteries and puzzles. Puzzles are there to be solved mysteries are there to be to be lived with and to provide some kind of structure to our lives so the trinity this whole relation here between the father and the son and indeed the holy spirit um is is a mystery but it's it's a mystery that 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 we can spend our whole lives exploring and, and living with and and using it i think to to find different approaches um, and, and different ways of sharing with, with one another this, um, this understanding of, or, or this, this attempt to understand who and what God is and, and therefore what our purpose in life is. 
Well, like you, I, I, I like the mystery of God. I am quite happy sitting in that space of not understanding. I think if I understood God, then God wouldn't be God. But it can be something for us to wrestle with, can't it? And I, I love that description of a mystery, not a puzzle. And that's really helpful. Yeah, I mean, coming back to the, the reference to Thomas and, and, and this use of the word doubt, um, I remember hearing Richard Holloway um, many years ago talking about, or asking the question, what, what is the opposite of faith? Um, and the, the, the knee-jerk answer, the immediate answer is probably doubt. But, but he then took us through what for me was a very convincing argument that the, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Because if we have that absolute certainty that we've got there, we've reached the end of the road, there's no room for faith anymore because faith is about that journeying towards certainty, that journey through our lives. Um, so for, for me, for me, doubt is a very, is, is, a, is a positive thing. Uh, and, and certainty is not a positive thing. I, I, I certainly don't claim any certainty. And I, I think it's so important in our lives to, to, to have that sense of, of always journeying um, and therefore always looking out, always being ready to be challenged by things happening in the world. Uh, so, the, you know, this is, brings us back full circle, in, in a sense, to, to the link between politics and faith. Um, because I, I think if, if we are travelling, if we are journeying through our lives with that sense of openness, of cu curiosity, of, of knowing that we don't know it all, but having having a sense that God is leading us somewhere um, through what we see in the world around us, and God is calling us to be part of that world. So, very important part certainly of of, of my my faith journey. I think all, all this all this struggling with with understanding. Oh, I'm sure a lot of people will find that really relatable, and and will really speak into their own journeys and and their own searching and that. Uh, that lack of certainty, but not a lack of faith. And I, I think that's really helpful. Yeah. 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 Um, so we've uh, been through some of, of that gospel reading, uh, I think that way, truth and life commentary, I think that was very helpful. Anything else on that gospel um, passage that you wanted to highlight for us uh, that we might want to pick up in preaching it this week? I suppose the other couple of verses that are worth mentioning are verses 13 and 14. Um, whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, I will do. Um, always one of those challenges is, is there about the, you know, ask and you will receive and so on, and these kinds of verses that, 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 can, be, that can be misunderstood. I, I think it's helpful to have that in my name and so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Um, we and we don't, we don't know in advance what, what will fulfil those criteria. So in, in our prayers, in, in our asking for, for whatever, in, in our asking for world peace, in our asking for, you know, for better things in the world, um, the awareness that um, we, are, we are doing it not, not for our own 
purposes, not for our, our own selfish gain, but as part of our attempt to follow Jesus again. Um, and, and again, that it's something taking us out in, in the world. Asking for something is, is, is not a, an abstract thing. If we ask for it in Jesus' name, we're, we're committing ourselves to being part of the answer. So I, again, I think it's, that's perhaps a, f a phrase, a sentence that, that can be used again as, as part of this taking us out into the world, um, taking us out of any, any cocoon that religion can, can offer or can be felt to offer. Well, that, yes, a reminder not to just take sort of parts of, of passages out of their context. If you just take the very end of, of verse 14, if you ask in my name anything, I will do it. Um, as you say, just taking that on its own without the context in which it's given in Jesus's name to glorify the Father, uh, that's quite a big qualification to that, uh, that statement, isn't it? That needs to be uh, held together. Um, yeah, and I, so I think all, all of these three New Testament passages that we've been looking at have have that that emphasis on on the need to to read the context, the widest possible context, because they're they're all open to the possibility of cherry picking, um, and um, we're 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 all prone to it, and I think it's something we we always need to resist in in looking at scripture you know we can always find a verse that that suits our own particular prejudice um but without seeing the widest possible context not only in the rest of the bible but in in the wider world um and in in perhaps our widest understanding of of a god of love a god whose principal attribute is love um to my mind anything that we're reading in scripture needs to be held against that, that ultimate context, if you like. Um, yeah. and, and therefore any, anything, um, for instance, the, the, the double predestination point, anything that seems to go against that sense of God as love, of love as the paramount purpose of our existence has, has to be seriously questioned. Um, and and if necessary, put aside. Yeah, that greatest commandment to, to love God and, and yeah. love one another as ourselves. Yeah, that's, that's, mm. thank you so much. Um, anything from the psalm that you wanted to um, to pull out? We've had a very rich conversation on all of those New Testament passages, but I don't know if there was anything from that psalm that had spoken to you. Right? I mean, the, the the psalm, like like so many. Is is a lovely psalm of worship. Um, I mean, I guess it was probably chosen for for the lecture because of the uh, verse five, which relates to um, essentially Stephen quotes when when Jesus, uh, when Stephen says, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." That's yeah. that's a sort of a sort of read across to to Psalm five. Um, beyond that, I, I I mean, I don't think I would I would use the the psalm as um in I, I'm not, I don't think I'd use it as in terms of my my sermon references for instance um, but I mean it, it's it's a lovely psalm and it's 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 a psalm that certainly can be used as part of a service as part of our worship so perhaps to be used uh liturgically as opposed to for, for preaching on yeah yeah exactly 
Oh, that's uh, really helpful. Well, uh, Reverend David Musgrave, we want to thank you so much uh, for coming on and for sharing your wisdom and your reflections with us today as you've been uh, sharing on those passages. I don't know if you had uh, any final thoughts or anything that you wish you'd said that we've missed in our conversation before we finish up for today. Well, thank you. I think we've we've, we've covered a lot. Um, just reminding ourselves that this is the week leading up to the, the coronation, but also with the local elections in between. Um, and I, I, I think focusing on, on that point that I was making about the, the root of democracy, which I would certainly read in, into that passage from, from 1 Peter. I think if, if we can hold firm to that through the, the ups and downs of, of, of these days, we would be doing well. Oh, wonderful. That's a, a really helpful final thought for us preachers as we're preparing for our sermons this Sunday. So again, thank you so much, David, for sharing with us. And uh, wonderful. Thank you. And thank you so much for the rest of you for, for joining us and for listening in uh, to ask uh, whether or how we should be preaching politics in the pulpit this week. If you've enjoyed this uh, episode of Politics in the Pulpit, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this with your friends. Uh, we have several online spaces for further engagement and discussion about faith and politics. So you can find us on Twitter at politics underscore pulpit, or I think that's the other way around, at pulpit underscore politics, or you can use the hashtag politics in the pulpit. Uh, we also have a Facebook group, which you can access through the Facebook page of the Joint Public Issues team. And of course, there is the website as well, jpit.uk. That's J-P-I-T dot U-K. Uh, so we're leaving you uh, with that question to see how you can uh, link together the coronation, uh, the elections, and what our um, passages, particularly from Peter, have to say to us about being a royal priesthood. Uh, so let's go out uh, into our politics and our pulpits with a blessing this week. The love of the heart of Jesus inflame us. The strength of the heart of Jesus uphold us. The wisdom of the heart of Jesus teach us. And the zeal of the heart of Jesus consume us. Now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you once again, David. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too.